Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chamber. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's, mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I have neglected. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make your earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that as we think about uh, your word, as we think about the difficult topic of sex, uh, particularly in the light of a, a difficult world, uh, Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom, that you give us ears to hear your words and to believe what you say, to take you at your word. Help us to hear these things in the light of the gospel. Uh, and the forgiveness as well that comes for sin uh, that we've committed in the past. Uh, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, most people, I think, are surprised to find something like the Song of Songs in the Bible. Uh, that's because the Song of Songs is a celebration of sex, and most people think that the Bible ought to be embarrassed about sex. Uh, our society, of course, isn't embarrassed about sex. You can barely hire a movie or uh, watch a TV show without there being sex uh, all through it, uh, or people kind of people either having sex or talking about it or whatever it might be. 
uh, earlier in the year, uh, my sister and I went, uh, took our two nieces uh, to uh, the ice skating rink, this new ice skating rink uh, near the airport in Sydney. And there's all these TVs around the outside showing video clips that oddly enough have no connection with the music that's playing. But anyway, uh, and all these video clips, we're looking at these video clips skating around with seven and nine-year-old nieces, and they were just utterly atrocious. You know, people kind of basically pretending to have sex, people wearing almost no clothes. Uh, And one of my nieces said, why do the women always have to be like that? You know? (laughs) Yes, good question. Uh, Why is it like that? Why Why in an ice skating rink where there are kids from the almost the youngest ages up, why, why is that everywhere, saturating our world? Why do we need that? One of the dangers, I think, for Christians in that world is to react against the public's fascination with sex by remaining silent about it. But the problem is that if we remain silent about sex and the people who will be training us and our children about it It won't be the Bible that's training people about sex and how to think about it, but it will be the world. It will be the people who are speaking the loudest. In an article a couple of years ago, one Christian lady wrote, What I appreciate about our church's sermons is that they've forced us to discuss topics we may have otherwise failed to mention. Isn't it better for a young person to hear about prostitution in a church service before hearing about it on a playground or school bus? Isn't it better for them to understand the beauty of marital marital intimacy through a series of sermons on Song of Song rather than a teen drama on TV? By bringing these topics into the open light of Scripture, we keep them from being taboo with our children. If God's word speaks about these subjects, then surely his church can learn to speak of them in appropriate ways as well. Could it be that we face so much sexual confusion, she writes, in the church because we fail to preach faithfully through all of Scripture? Society shames sex by speaking of it too often in the wrong context, with smirks and innuendos. Conversely, we in the church often shame sex by failing to speak of it at all, missing the opportunities the Word of God appropriates for our instruction. So what I want to do this morning is to present a very positive view, the the, the, the positive view that the Bible has of sex. Uh, It might be awkward, but as we say in my growth group, uh, embrace the awkwardness. Uh, We're talking about awkward conversations, but it applies here to talking about sex as well. And hopefully the awkwardness might help us to actually make this a topic of conversation with our children Uh, and friends in a way that counteracts the damaging view of sex that pervades our society. Uh, Before we get into it, a couple of things to mention. The first is that I have been very much helped by a talk that uh, a lecturer from the college I went to, the Reformed Theological College, he gave a talk on the Song of Songs a few years ago, and I've been very much helped by that. Credit where credit's due. The other thing to say is that we'll be jumping all around the Bible today, so it would be good to keep your Bibles open Uh, and uh, to keep referring to that. So what does the Bible tell us about sex? 
Well, I think there's six things. First, the Bible says that God made sex. In fact, sex is so fundamental that it's introduced on the first few pages of the Bible. God says in Genesis 2, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the oneness that Genesis speaks of is not merely a a relational oneness, but a physical oneness. You know, we often use that Bible passage to talk about marriage, but it's actually going further than that, isn't it? It's talking about, it's actually talking about physical intimacy. They become one flesh. Once we understand that God made sex and made us as sexual creatures, it makes perfect sense for there to be a book in the Bible which celebrates that. There's no denying that Song of Songs does exactly that. There's no denying that it's a book which celebrates sex. Uh, It's not only that, a book celebrating sex, it also uh, celebrates love and intimacy. But the desire, it celebrates the desire for sex which flows out of that love and intimacy. Uh, We saw that in in the section that we read just before. It's, It's written all over that first chapter. Uh, From that very first chapter of the book, the man and woman express their desire to sleep together. Verse 4, take me away with you, let us hurry. They can't wait, let the king bring me into his chambers. Uh, That desire for sex is not a source of embarrassment. Uh, In fact, I love this, even the friends get excited about their passionate desire. Uh, We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. It's so important, I think, for us to realise that sex is not a source of embarrassment or shame because God created it. God created it as a good gift. God created men and women as sexual beings. And throughout the history of the church, some Christians have tried to distort that, have made a terrible mistake of trying to kind of deny sex as though even married couples should avoid sex. I mean, people have actually taught that in the history of the church, that you should avoid it as much as possible. Paul addresses that kind of error already in 1 Corinthians 7. That is, the church has only just begun, and already he's addressing that error. There were people in the church in uh, Corinth who were saying that husbands and wives should avoid sex. But Paul actually gives, surprisingly, the opposite advice. Don't avoid it. Go for it, more or less. Uh, Otherwise, Satan will gain the upper hand. You can't get away from the fact that sex in the Song of Songs is a wonderful gift from God. It's something to be celebrated. Think about how it's described. It's like a garden. It's like incense. It's like the finest spices. It's like choice fruit. Listen to chapter 6, verse 2. My lover has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. The Bible isn't negative about sex. Uh, It's negative about sex in the wrong context. Uh, It's negative. It's very negative about sex outside of marriage. But within marriage, it's very, very positive about sex. 
To be embarrassed about sex is to be embarrassed about a precious gift that God has given. That's not to say that we should make sex public. So our, as someone has said, that's what our society has done. Our society has made the private public and the public private. That is, sex is on display everywhere and religion has become the private domain that cannot be mentioned in the open. It's not that we should make sex public. Even Song of Songs' celebration of sex is kind of veiled in the language of poetry. It's a discreet celebration. But it's still a celebration of the good gift that God has given. So that's the first thing. It's important to realise that God created sex and created us as sexual beings. uh, And that's that's a good gift from God. The second thing to say is that Uh, God created sex for marriage. God created a context in which sex is appropriate. So, again, right from the beginning of Genesis, you see that. God says in Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So the one flesh unity in sex is grounded in a man leaving his father and mother and a woman leaving her father and mother and the two resolving to cling to each other. It's in that context, that pre-established context, that the one flesh unity is appropriate. It's only within that existing formal context of leaving and, as they always used to say, cleaving or committing to each other, clinging to each other. It's only in that context of leaving and cleaving that sex is appropriate. Genesis 2 doesn't spell out then all the uh, kind of particulars of a modern day wedding service uh, with all the government paperwork. I hate that part, I really do. Uh, it's very stressful. It doesn't, Genesis 2 doesn't give all, all the details of that, but it does give us those absolutely fundamental prerequisites, those two prerequisites. First, the decisive and public moment of two people leaving their own families... And second, the decisive and public moment of of two people purposely and intentionally committing to begin a new family in which they literally cling together. You see that uh, image of sex within marriage uh, as as crucial. You see that within the, the Song of Songs as well. Song of Songs is not just a celebration of love and intimacy and and sex. It's a celebration of those things within the confines of marriage. So in the section that Nathan read for us earlier, from chapter 1 and 2, the sexual desire between the man and the woman is an unmet desire. That is, they're longing for sex, but it hasn't happened yet. It's not until chapter 4 that that happens, and before that, in chapter 3, there's a kind of a wedding scene. So 3 verse 7, look, it's Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, uh, warriors, the noblest of Israel. Here comes Solomon, he's coming for the wedding. And then in verse 11, come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Uh, Then in chapter 4, there's the wedding night, uh, chapter 4 verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amanah, from the top of Senir, 
the summit of Hermon from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. She's now called his bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any, any spice. Uh, she's described as his bride, and then in verse 12, she's described as a garden locked up. My sister, my bride, you are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. That is, I think he's saying uh, she's a virgin. And then in verse 16, there's the invitation to consummate the marriage. Awake north wind and come south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh uh, with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. In fact, those verses, verse uh, 16 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5, those verses lie at exactly the centre of the whole book. So at the centre of the book of Song of Songs is this celebration of sex and intimacy as the pinnacle of marriage. This book is not just a celebration of sex and intimacy and love, but it's a celebration of sex and intimacy and love within the bounds of marriage. God made sex for marriage. The purpose of sex is not to create a unity that doesn't exist. The purpose of sex is to foster and reaffirm the unity that's already been committed to in marriage. So to divorce sex from marriage as our society has done is not to liberate it. It's actually to destroy it. Uh, And to make it unable to achieve the purpose for which it was intended by God. It's actually to make it into a shadow of what it was intended to be. And in that sense, it can't help be anything except utterly dissatisfying. Nowhere is that more clear, I think, than the language we use to describe sex. People talk about having sex. But actually, that's really mechanical and utilitarian language, isn't it? That's the language I've used in the sermon up to this point because that's the language of our society. But sex is so much more than a physical act. The older language, I think, of making love is really a much better term because it captures what the purpose of sex is. The Bible often uses the language of knowing someone, which suggests that the purpose of sex is deep knowledge and and, and insight, a connection. Emotional connection. Sex is about a deep unity between two people. It's about knowing someone in the deepest and the most ultimate sense. And in fact, as soon as you change the language of sex, it becomes stunningly obvious how hollow and damaging are so many of the distortions of sex in our society. Adultery casual sex, porn, masturbation 
are all devoid of love or they have misplaced love. They're seeking to create a love which hasn't been committed to or there's no love even in the context. When we use sex for our own pleasure, we rob sex of its intended meaning and purpose. We actually destroy it. Sex is about fostering unity and love within a marriage. But sex in marriage is not always like that. That's the aim, that's the purpose, but not always the reality. And so it's important, I think, to realise that in the rest of Song of Songs, as that book unfolds, not everything is smooth sailing. The relationship and the intimacy of the couple is challenged in chapter 5. And that challenge has to be worked through and eventually that challenge is met. And as we head toward the end of the book of Song of Songs, that intimacy and relationship ends up deeper rather than shallower. So God made sex. He made us as sexual beings. He made sex for marriage. Uh, Yet even though sex was made for our enjoyment uh, and for the deepening of unity within marriage, there's no getting away from the fact, I think, that it was also created by God for the purpose of procreation or for having children. So when God created men and women, he charged them to be fruitful, to fill the earth and to cultivate it. And sex is the way that we fulfill that commission. Uh, I think the language of sex being ordered towards procreation, so that's the language that some people have adopted. It's an odd expression, but I think it's a helpful one, if you bear with me. The language of sex being ordered towards procreation is helpful because not every act of sex produces children, but that, isn't, that, but that potential exists uh, in sex. And obviously not everyone who wants to have children can have children, uh, but one of the reasons that that's painful is because of that, that ordering, if you like. Uh, it's painful because of the very, very reality that sex and marriage is ordered towards having children. Uh, If it wasn't like that, then the situation wouldn't be painful. But it is painful. It's a source of deep pain for people uh, and it's okay to feel that pain because it wasn't supposed to be like that. Uh, I I think sometimes the way that people talk about Uh, not being able to have children, uh, they talk about in such a way that uh, almost to feel that pain, Christians can talk about it in such a way almost that to feel that pain is somehow somehow wrong. You know, it's idolatrous to want children. And And it can be. But it's actually okay to feel that pain. Because it was something that sex and marriage were made for. Something that we were made for as human beings. And so we shouldn't compound the agony of people by saying to them, well, how wicked of you for wanting the very thing for which God (laughs) purposed and created us. 
The fact that uh, sex is ordered toward having children implies that the intention of children must lie somewhere in the orbit of a sexual relationship, by which I mean uh, not that every act of sex must have the intention of producing children. I'm not arguing against contraception. Uh, But what I am suggesting is that the relationship as a whole should be ordered toward that purpose. Ordered toward the purpose of having children and raising children, even if you don't end up being blessed by God with that. That is another way of saying that the rationale we don't want children because they would be an inconvenient burden on our relationship is to completely misunderstand the purpose of sex and marriage. But that is actually the kind of rationale which undergirds most of our society. Children are an encumbrance rather than a blessing from God. Children will get in the way of our relationship. That's not the Bible's view. So God made sex. He made us as sexual beings. He made sex for marriage. He made sex at least in part for having children ordered toward that purpose. But if there's one other thing that the Song of Songs does besides celebrating uh, love and intimacy in marriage, it's to warn people about the power of sex and the power of sexual desire. So although sex is a good gift from God, because of the sin in the world and the sin in our own hearts, it's also a powerful and dangerous gift that ought to be treated uh, cautiously. A few times through the Song of Songs, we find that repeated warning. It occurs for the first time in chapter 2, verse 7. We read it before. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Those statements are warnings not to awaken sexual desire until the proper time. That's because it's a powerful force. You only have to look at our society to see what a powerful and dangerous force sexual desire is. The desire for sex, for lots of sex, and for better sex is cultivated by our society, by the conversations we have, by the films we watch, by the books that we read, and once the genie is out of the bottle, it can't be put back in. It is ravaging our society. People are are appallingly depressed because they're promised that free and open sex will make their lives happy. And it hasn't. But the main application of the warning of Song of Songs is not to society but to individuals. Don't awaken love. When the warning first appears, the couple aren't actually married. They're looking ahead to their marriage. And the warning is not to embrace that profound sexual intimacy until the marriage has actually taken place. The warning is against awakening the powerful desire for physical intimacy too early. If you keep pushing the boundaries of physical intimacy before you're married, then you'll keep awakening that desire more and more. And before you know it, you'll be sleeping together. And the, and the writer of the song, the song says, don't do it. And what's true of physical intimacy actually is also true of emotional intimacy as well. Emotional intimacy awakens the desire for physical intimacy. 
the deeper you go emotionally, the more it will push you towards sex. The advice I always give to people who are dating is, be careful. It's not particularly sophisticated advice, but it's very simple. Because so many well-intentioned people that I've known have fallen in this area. No, it won't happen to us. I think it could. No. And then a few months later, we're having that conversation. Don't awaken love before it's time. If you and your boyfriend or girlfriend can't wait, then get married. Don't put off marriage because you need to plan a big wedding. What a stupid thing to do. What a waste of money, more to the point. (laughs) Just get married. I don't mean rush foolishly into an ill-advised marriage. Talk to people around you, as you always should when you're getting married, about whether or not they think that your marriage is a good idea. Other people see things that we don't see. Other people are wiser than we are, funnily enough. What I mean is, don't unnecessarily delay getting married. If you want to get married, even, dare I say it, if you want to get married in order to have sex, do it. The couple here are, let us hurry away to the king's chamber. They're very open and honest that their love is pushing them toward that. But the warning of the Song of Songs is not only for people who are looking ahead to marriage, the warning is there for people who are married as well. People who are married as well need to be careful not to awaken love in the wrong context. We need to hold back uh, to some degree on the emotional intimacy that we develop with people that we're not married to. So many affairs begin with people becoming great friends and all of a sudden they find themselves saying, he understands me so much more than my, than my husband. I read an article a while ago, I'm sure, I can't actually remember, but uh, I couldn't find it. But I read an article a while ago, it was about a lady, uh, I think she was divorced. Uh, she'd gone through a messy divorce and she made, another, she made a great friendship with another woman. Uh, And that relationship became more and more emotionally intimate and eventually it became more and more physically intimate. Don't awaken love. Be careful. Love and sexual desire is a powerful thing. It's a good gift from God, but it's a dangerous thing as well. That's also why, as I said last week, in relation to singleness, I think it's better to pursue a diversity of relationships rather than one or two. Because one or two relationships can become a kind of quasi-substitute for marriage. And having a range of relationships helps us, uh, keeps us from developing improper intimacy with the wrong people or in the wrong setting.
So God made sex. He made a sexual being. He made sex for marriage. Uh, he made sex, at least in part, for having children. Because of sin in the world, sex is powerful and dangerous, and we ought to treat it with, uh, with caution. It's good, but it's powerful and dangerous. Uh, but although God created sex as a good gift, fifth, uh, sex is still not essential for life. Last week we looked at the issue of singleness and we kind of skipped over the fact that Jesus implicitly links being unmarried with living without sex. And he does that in a very graphic way. So Matthew 19, 12, Jesus says, For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus says some people choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They're not actually eunuchs, but they live in that way uh, to serve God better. But it's important to realise that uh, eunuchs are not just unmarried people, right? Eunuchs are people who lack sexual fulfilment. They're people who've been castrated. It's a graphic, it's a very graphic way of depicting the fact that some people live without sex and can survive. And I think it's hard to overestimate how significant a statement that is in our society. Sex is not like food. You can't live without food. You can live without sex. And yet our society uses the language of appetites to describe sex. People have sexual appetites and the implication is that those appetites need to be fed. It's almost considered a deprivation of someone's basic human rights to deny them sex whenever they want with whomever they want, as long as they're consenting adults. In a press release last year, the Greens described the message of sexual abstinence being taught in scripture classes in New South Wales as, I quote, dangerous. One Christian writer followed up with the astute observation that sexual, sexual immorality in our, in our society is no longer sex outside the confines of marriage. Sexual immorality in our society is now not having sex. But Jesus utterly rejects that way of thinking. Jesus himself, a single and celibate man, says that it's possible to live without sex. And even that choosing to live without sex for the sake of the kingdom of heaven is not only possible, but noble and dignified. God made sex. He made sex for marriage. He made sex at least in part for having children. But because of sin in the world, sex is not only a good gift, but also a dangerous and powerful gift. Sex is not essential for life. Finally, sex is not ultimate. As we've seen with marriage in the last couple of weeks, marriage is not ultimate, but is a picture of our relationship with Christ. So too, sex is not ultimate, but is a picture of our relationship with Christ. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6.
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And Paul writes, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now Paul's talking about sexual immorality there. Uh, but in passing, he makes a profound and perhaps unexpected point. He says, just as in sex, two people become one flesh, when we unite ourselves with Jesus by faith, we become one with him, not in flesh, but in spirit. In other words, in some way, the one flesh relationship of sex and marriage mirrors and pictures the one spirit relationship that we have with Christ through the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I think it means that as wonderful and as joyful and as profound and as deep and as intimate and as uh, glorious as the physical relationship of sex within marriage is, that's just a small taste of the wonder and joy and the profundity and the depth of intimacy of our spiritual union with Christ. That is, it's just a, it's just a foretaste of something actually better. In some deep and profound way, the physical intimacy of sex is a picture of the spiritual unity that we have with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Sex, as good as the Bible says it is, is not ultimate. It's just a taste of something much, much better. And if that's true, it means that it's foolish to live for sex. Our culture is so sex-saturated that it puts sex as front and centre. And more sex and better sex becomes the absolute pursuit of people's lives. Even within marriage that can be true. But that's fundamentally dissatisfying because although we were made for sex and although sex is a good gift, it's not ultimate. Our relationship with Jesus and our union with him through the Holy Spirit is the ultimate thing. It also means, uh, if sex is not ultimate, it also means that it's possible to go a whole life and miss out on sex. You'd think watching TV and films that a life without sex is a kind of a half-life, a life not worth living. But if sex is not ultimate, then although missing out on the intimacy of sex in this life is a genuine loss, it's not an ultimate loss. It's a bit like skipping the entrees to save yourself for dessert and the main course. Unpleasant at the time while you're watching everyone eating, but all forgotten once the main main meal finally gets there. Sex is a good gift from God and we ought to receive it in marriage as a precious and glorious gift. But it's not essential and it's not ultimate. Our deep spiritual union with Jesus through the Holy Spirit is what's ultimate and it's our deep spiritual union with Jesus through the Holy Spirit which will last into eternity. Let me pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all your good and precious gifts. And this morning, Lord, we particularly thank you for the wonderful gift of physical intimacy. The wonderful gift of sex in the right context. Sex within the context of a marriage of utter commitment. Of committed love. Sex in the context that it was designed to have. In the context in which it can be fulfilling and good and wonderful and glorious and satisfying. And yet, Lord, we're conscious that we live in a world which is marred by the abuse and the destruction of sex. And Lord, perhaps some of those traits and things have touched our lives as well. Perhaps some of us here, Lord, have abused sex. Or perhaps some of us, Lord, are in marriages where uh, sex is difficult, broken. Father, grant grace and mercy. Grant forgiveness for those who have sinned. Grant repentance to turn away from sin and to embrace your great vision of what sex ought to be like. Grant healing uh, for those, Lord, whose lives are marred by past sexual failures. And grant healing, Lord, for those marriages which don't live up to the ideal that your word paints for us in the Bible. And Lord, for those who uh, are unmarried, help them to know that contrary to our world's teaching, sex is not essential, that it's not ultimate but it points to the spiritual intimacy and love which we have with, for Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us all to fix our eyes on that great uh, and abundant joy that we have in expectation in eternity. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.